You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 17. Today, we're sitting down with award-winning writer and photographer Charles Bergman to chat about how a passion project grew into a 17-year quest to photograph every species of penguin in the world and his new book that documents his journeys and what he learned along the way. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with today's guest, Charles Bergman. We had a really nice chat about his relationship to animals, how following his passions has led him to some incredible places, and the life lessons he's learned along the way. So let me give you a little background on Charles before we roll the interview. Writer and photographer Charles Bergman is a longtime professor of English at Pacific Lutheran University. He is the author of five books related to conservation, including one that will be the focus of today's conversation called Every Penguin in the World, A Quest to See Them All, which was published in 2020 by Sasquatch Books. He's written over 150 articles on wildlife and animals in national magazines, including Smithsonian, Audubon, Natural History, and National Geographic. Several articles have been cover stories, including a story on wildlife trafficking in Latin America Smithsonian. His writing and photography have won several awards, including the Washington State Book Award, the Southwest Book Award, the Ben Franklin Book Award, and he was a Penn USA Literary Award finalist. Charles has also completed two Fulbright fellowships in Mexico and Ecuador. One of his greatest joys has been to lead student away study tours to wild destinations like Ecuador, Argentina, Mexico, Chile, Tanzania, and Uganda. And he's proud to have led six tours to Antarctica with his students. Sounds pretty amazing to me. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide ranging conversation with Charles Bergman. Charles, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Brenda. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. I'm really excited to learn more about your work. So I've already given the listeners your bio in the introduction, but for those who are not yet familiar with you and your work, I was wondering if you could please tell us a little bit about your origin story. So who is Charles? Where are you from? And maybe a little bit about how you got started in photography. Well, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm a Pacific Northwest native. I was born in Minneapolis, but grew up in Seattle. And uh, went to the University of Washington. Have a, I'm a little bit unusual in my trajectory, my path toward photography. Um, I have a, a PhD, <laughs> and uh, it's not in biology or conservation or geology or anything like that. It's in um, English Renaissance literature. Wow. Yeah, it's very unusual for this kind of, for somebody who does what I have made a career out of doing. 
Um, I taught Shakespeare for several decades. My dissertation uh, for the PhD is on 16th century English poetics. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, actually. And um, so it's been a kind of interesting path from poetry or Petrarch, the sonneteers of the 16th century and Shakespeare to penguins. Right. Uh, it's, uh, but it's really uh, the path of simply following passions. And one thing I like about this background is it's kind of a, a historical background. And I'm used to thinking about things in historical or terms, cultural terms. And that's enabled me to think kind of broadly about animals and nature and our relationships to them. And I've, I've written about that quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, um, when I was in graduate school, I discovered birding okay. quite by accident and um, then found myself writing about birding adventures for upper Midwest. I got a PhD at the University of Minnesota and so wrote for magazines a little bit. And then uh, when I got when I got hired at Pacific Lutheran University, I got active in the local Audubon. <clears throat> excuse me. And. Well, I don't know. That just led to some great opportunities. I met Art Wolf and I was oh, wow. a writer for I, I he and I did projects together for Smithsonian and National Geographic and he was the photographer and I was the writer. Oh, okay. Um and uh you know, it just occurred to me I'm in the field. We're at a wolf den in Alaska, <laughs> been helicoptered into a wolf den in Alaska, for example. This is wow. true. Um, because we were on assignment for National Geographic on a wolf story. And I'm with Art Wolf, and I'm thinking, why don't I have a camera with me? Right. For <laughs> <laughs> crying out loud. So uh, so I started, I, did, I started taking some photos <clears throat> because I was just in such great opportunities with such great masters of the game of photography and uh, the art of photography, really. Yeah. And um, so over time, I just sort of evolved and I did a lot. So a lot of what I've done is writing. I do writing and use the camera to supply my own photographs. And photography has become a real passion for me. I really it's almost displaced the writing. I mean, I still love writing, but um, but I just there are times when I'm in the field and I'm just with the camera and I just love that camera so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of what it enables. And for me, it's a real way of knowledge. It's a way of knowing animals and um, and establishing a certain kind of relationship with them. And I really love that about the camera. I think it makes things possible that that are not really possible in writing. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to congratulate you on the publication of your new book, which is titled Every Penguin in the World, A Quest to See Them All. I I bought the book and I'm excited to dive deeper into it with you. Um, but before we do, I was I wanted to start off with a quote from one of your other books called Wild Echoes, Encounters with the Most Endangered Animals in North America, in which you chronicle nine of North America's most endangered species And I wanted to read this quote because I suspect it may uh, summarize your passion for and motivation behind a lot of the work that we'll talk about today. So in the updated introduction of Wild Echoes, you state that, quote, the root cause of these losses is deeper than habitat loss or pollution or hunting or invasive species. 
though all of these play their part. The deepest cause for the loss of animals is how we think about the animals, unquote. So I was wondering, can you please explain this concept further? And what is it about how we think about animals that is leading to their disappearance from the planet? Yeah. Well, it's a terrific question. And thanks for quoting that passage and that 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 line. Um, it is it gets to the fundamental root of what humanities, somebody who studies philosophy or literature has to offer to the current crisis in nature and animals that the planet is experiencing that we live on. Mm-hmm. Um, we ha- we've inherited certain ways of thinking about animals that have direct impacts on how we behave toward them and how we treat them and how we relate to them. And the basic paradigm or model of that is that humans are superior. In fact, humans have imagined themselves over the last, in Western culture, certainly, and probably other cultures, um, have imagined themselves, think of themselves as fundamentally and qualitatively different from the rest of the animal kingdom there we think of ourselves as utterly utterly unique and in fact for a lot of our history we've thought of ourselves as not quite really animals at all Mm -hmm. Um, we are i mean all you have to do is think about the way people use the the term animal as a negative as an insult and you realize that 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 word in that category summarizes something that we aren't so humans have been thought to have reason soul uh, certain kinds of emotions uh, a kind of spirit that connects us with god that makes us fundamentally different from all other animals so we're the animal it was thought that could talk and that can reason and that no other animals can well, right. that's a way of thinking about animals. And what that enables is uh, if you don't think animals can think and if you don't think animals can feel, uh, it makes it easier to treat them in ways uh, that subject them to our particular desires. And we do with them as we want. Right. So um, they have no rights, for example. They, they have no legal standing in Western culture. Um and the upshot is that we are we are living the consequences of that way of thinking about animals. Um, they are disappearing, and it makes sense that they would because the world is ours, and right. we inherit it. It's ours by right and by by might, I suppose you could say, just because we we are the, we are what the world is all about the the world is measured by us and its ability to satisfy our desires yeah and I, there's just i think no question that that has led to a kind of um, dismissal of the of the interests and the needs of animals and if we need something and there are animals there well we have historically not bothered to take their needs into account if our if ours were thought pressing enough yeah. Happily, that's changing. One of the things I love about this particular period in the history of our relationships with animals and have an interest in animals and nature right now is that it's a, and there's this real strange, wonderful period of flux. So, I mean, on the one hand, probably this, the, out, the outlook and the forecast for animals is probably never been more dismal. I mean, there are like 27,000 species currently in imminent danger of extinction, and that's 28% of all the assessed species there are, over a quarter. Wow. 
over a quarter of the assessed species are considered in imminent danger of extinction. That's just astonishing. It is. Really. Um, and so there's that on the one hand, there's really dark kind of uh, really, well, the, this dark future that we seem to be creating for ourselves with the planet. And then on the other hand, there have never been uh, more people who are vigorous and vocal advocates for animals. I think that's also really true. Yeah. So the question is, uh, can we can we transform the way we think of and relate to animals sooner than we drive them to extinction? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that brings us to your book, the Penguin book. So, um, you know, I've really enjoyed reading it, uh, Every Penguin in the World, and not just because of the compelling images of the penguins that you included in it, but more so, I think, the the narratives that you have included of all your many adventures. You're a very uh, great storyteller, and so it was just I found myself immersed in the, in the stories. Um, so can you start us off with just a, a summary of what the book is about for the listeners and, and maybe give a little history about how this project got started? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Thanks. And thanks for the nice words about the book. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things I think is that, uh, well, I wanted to write a book and, uh, that was story-driven, fact-friendly, but not really biology and not really natural history. I mean, it's in it, it's, but it's not exactly what is the main driver, because I think stories are really crucial. Stories are how we understand our relationship to things. And um, that's, uh, you can tell, and it's, it's also stories are how we kind of come to terms with the meaning of things. Mm -hmm. So science is really good at telling us about the facts, right. which is great. But what makes us care about things? What makes us want to do something on behalf of things? Well, I think that's story more than more than facts, because story is really how we come to 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 make meaning for ourselves, especially yeah. about relationship. At any rate, so what I love about this penguin project is that there's two number of things, but one of them is that my wife and I did it together, Susan Mann and I. We traveled. Um, I did some traveling pretty much on my own, but a lot of this was we did together and we saw all 18 species together. Wow. Ultimately. So that was really cool. I really liked that. Yeah. Um, and the other is uh, we didn't set out to write a book. This was not something I actually intended to do. Um, it's really quite an accidental occurrence that the book emerged hmm. didn't really set out to see 18 species of penguins uh, really it what it was was we just enjoyed seeing penguins <laughs> <laughs> so we saw one species and thought well look at there's some more over here let's to make a trip to go over to that species and um <clears throat> what happened really was we found ourselves with these kind of deepening experiences and we for one of our anniversaries we decided to volunteer with Earthwatch Expedition mm -hmm. for two weeks to help with the research and conservation project of African penguins on Robben Island in Africa. That was an amazing experience. It was really wonderful. And it's a deeply endangered penguin, maybe one of the most endangered, down some 95% in population numbers over the last century. Wow. And, um, the, the biologists studying it, it's still, it's still just plunging. 
think it might be extinct by 2050. <clears throat> oh, gosh. At any rate, <clears throat> we were working with them, and we were actually getting to help them weigh and measure baby penguins. And on that day in particular, Susan looked at me and said, you know, this is our 10th species of penguin. And we've been doing this as partly to celebrate an anniversary of ours. And I said, you know what? And today, by, by sheer coincidence in one sense, today is our 10th wedding anniversary. Wow. 10 for 10. <laughs> and there was just something about the symmetry. I can't tell you. There was just something about the symmetry that was compelling. And that was when we decided to try to see all, all the species of penguins. We'd thought about it actually resisted it because it was difficult. A lot of these species are very remote, very hard to get to places. Yeah. And all of them require travel in places that can be even dangerous at, from time to time with storms and heavy seas and that sort of thing. Yeah. But we just decided we had to do it. And part of the goal was to spread the conservation of penguins. So, so we, we backed into the whole project about seeing all the species. And it wasn't until we had seen them all that I realized I think this is a book. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's got, to, I love it because it has its overarching trajectory. Right. Um, and then it, it, it was just composed of a lot of fun stories uh, with different kinds of emotional valences, you know, harrowing in some cases, really beautiful and uh, lyrical in other cases. And I just thought this would make a terrific book. So. I found a publisher pretty easily, and that was that was that. And the publisher was great because it's not easy to find publishers who will get behind a book that is both meant to be read and has color photos that you want spread throughout the book. Right. Uh, usually, it's one or the other that's emphasized. You know, good right. photography with okay writing, but not really. You know, not really about the writing or good writing, and then a few photos dropped in the middle well of the book, which, uh, so they, they were great. They, they got behind the whole project. And That's great. And really wanted to make a, a, a book with good photos as well as strong writing. And it's been a pleasure to, to, to have worked on it. I loved writing it, and I loved, I loved photographing it. Penguins are just so much fun to photograph. Oh, yeah. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> and they're a really great test case on conservation because everybody loves penguins. Everybody right. loves penguins. Yeah. And if you can't save penguins, I think we're in really bad shape. Right. We really have to ask, what in the world can we save if we can't save them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going to put us to the test for sure. Yeah. So how long did this whole project take? Well, from the time I first saw my, when I saw my first penguin, which is a Galapagos penguin, really, it wasn't in Antarctica or deep south at all. It was on the equator. Um, to actually seeing species number 18 was 15 years, and then it was another two years before I had the text written so it was a 17 okay. year project wow by the time i submitted the text wow um, that's amazing yeah it's a long time but i really love i mean the, the cool thing was it wasn't it, you know i wrote it under contract but but the, it was the project kind of emerged organically itself it was just it wasn't me trying to write a book if right. you know what i mean and, yeah and so it it really by the time we got to it, I'd been living with penguins and they had come to take me take over me in so many ways. I mean, be, it, it's really a lot of the story of the history of a kind of growing obsession. 
<laughs> beautiful obsession but and that made it made writing it really fun actually it wasn't and i wasn't pulling my hair out and i didn't have the kind of you know there was no i had no moments of writer's block or any of that sort of thing so it was just yeah. a really real pleasure to photograph to have these great experiences and then to, to write about it and assemble it all into a package of a nice book and it was really it was a joy for me that's great did you ever consider other forms of sharing the work you know like a, a, a traveling exhibit or anything like that you know um, no i'm not a, I, I, marketing and sort of that whole thing actually i have to admit doesn't come really naturally to me but yeah. susan has done a lot of that and so if people go to the website there's a lot of kind of cool stuff there um there's we made a poster that people can download for free with all 18 species of the penguins and a kind of cool fact about each of them for example oh, there is a penguin that blushes um <laughs> there's also one species of penguin that is not black and white uh, oh wow um so there you know which is the fastest penguin why is a macaroni penguin named after pasta right you know, <laughs> uh, i kind of put, put kind of fun facts so there's oh. the, the website does that we have uh penguin grams if people want to send a penguin gram to somebody <laughs> they oh. can do it through the website oh that's great so what is the website address and i'll be sure to put it in the show notes as well thanks charlesbergman.com okay well, actually yeah that yeah that's the web, the website charlesbergman.com okay yeah i'll definitely link that out in the show notes uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'll definitely check it out. My mom actually, absolutely, she's been obsessed with penguins for my entire life. Um, definitely pointing her in the direction of your website, and I'm going to share your book with her. So, right. yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people love penguins. It's amazing. It's just amazing the constituency penguins have. I, yeah, I mean, they're really compelling. <laughs> you know, they really are. Yeah, but, you know, they have that comical, irresistible waddle. Right. And upright. There, there's probably no bird quite as curious as a penguin. They'll, many species will walk right up to you, look you straight in the face, hmm. climb on you. I've had wow. them lying down, photographing one penguin and having another penguin jump on me from behind. <laughs> they're, just, they're, they're just, they're great. Uh, I actually think the reason we love them so much is that more than any other bird in the world, they remind us of ourselves. Yeah. That makes sense because they they kind of walk upright rather than right. like most birds yeah right. their, their flippers are not wings and they look a lot like arms right you know they look well dressed right yeah <laughs> in so many ways like us they're extremely social they're curious um they live in big colonies and cities there's a lot of penguin crime oh goodness <laughs> penguin on penguin crime <laughs> <laughs> they're, really, they're just they're irresistible. They, yeah. I challenge you. I challenge anybody. And one of the best things about penguins is that it's really hard. It's, I think, almost impossible to be miserable when you're in their company. <laughs> they they're therapeutic. The best, they are therapeutic. They're the best damn, excuse my language, they're That's the okay. best dang uh, antidote to despair that I know of. And um, so yeah if you're feeling down and well especially in the past year of this pandemic yeah notice how many like zoos would they they did videos on their websites of penguin day when they would release the penguins to explore the zoo with no people in it. 
You know, people are tuning in because it makes you feel better in a bad situation. And we were right. in a bad situation. Oh, that's great. Uh, so you mentioned that your first penguin encounter was in the Galapagos. And so I was wondering, uh, obviously, it seemed to have left a, a strong impression on you and, and maybe had even, you know, changed the trajectory of your life because now you decided you wanted to learn more about penguins. So can you describe for us what that experience was like and what was going through your mind in that first encounter? Yeah. Um, the first experience was with penguins was in the Galapagos Islands and it was on Robbie the Island, the red shore, red sand shore. Uh, the shore with red, the, the island with red sand on its beaches. Mm-hmm. But let me t- tell a story of a different penguin uh, that really drives home what, why penguins really started to become an obsession. I mean, I love seeing the penguins in the Galapagos and we got to swim with them and that was probably really important. And for me, one of the goals of photography and one of the goals of any encounter with animals in the wild, as it would be with people really in another culture, is to try to enter into their point of view about things, to see the world the way they might see it mm-hmm. from their perspective. And so with penguins, that that's an amazing thing to undertake. And with the Galapagos penguins, that becomes possible because you can get into the water with them and you can actually swim with them. There's yeah, some places where it's really easy to swim with them. Wow. And that will give you a sense of penguin, penguinness, unlike any kind of experience on land, because they are clearly superior to us in the water. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, but the, the experience that really made the biggest early impact and kind of change in my life happened on South Georgia Island. Okay. Um, and it was, uh, we were about five years into this. We weren't really on a penguin quest at all yet. Um, uh, but we had heard that South Georgia Island was this wonderful place to go. So we signed up for a three week, little over three week trip just to the island, just to South Georgia Island. And for those of you, your listeners who don't know, South Georgia is an English, uh, it's a UK Commonwealth overseas territory. It's, it's about eight or nine hundred miles east of Argentina, okay. just inside the Antarctic Ocean, the Southern Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long, narrow kind of island with a lot of bays, and it is the most spectacular place. It's got it's the home for huge colonies of king penguins. These really beautiful penguins, really large with bright orange ear patches and orange on their chest. Mm-hmm. They're just gorgeous penguins. Um, colonies of 250,000 pairs of them. Wow. Yeah, just it'll make you believe in God. Uh, really, it will drive you to your knees, and the beauty is just so overwhelming. Wow. Uh, elephant seals, um, albatrosses nesting, nesting. Oh, it's just unbelievable. Anyway, it's so cool. So we'd heard that it was great and we signed up for this trip and it turns out it was everything. It was as advertised and more. Yeah. So we, we, we were on a trip that was, they had a lot of photographers and the people who were running the, the expedition leaders were really good about letting us get ashore at first light, which is really great. You want to be careful when you do these things uh, that you get, people who uh, your expedition people understand the value of 
of light and you know great experiences unless you have as much time ashore as possible right well, so we went ashore on saint andrew's bay really just at first light but no breakfast forget breakfast um and let's see penguins it was really beautiful and um this there was the big plain well a pebbled beach a big plain with gorgeous snowy mountains in the backdrop and a blue sky and a beautiful beautiful morning mm. and then there was a stream of meltwater coming out of the snowy mountains that had formed pools on this big plain of the beach before it emptied down into the sea and there were penguins gathered around this pool of water and it was just really wonderful so king penguin you know 50 60 70 king penguins around a pool of water their image reflected in the water gorgeous mm. mountains in the background and also reflected in the water wow and i thought this is this is what wild beauty is all about right and so of course i wanted to photograph it so i got down on my stomach and i was crawling on my elbows to get close and um you know they were penguins didn't care they let me come up pretty close it's, it's one of the values of getting down low is you're non-threatening mm -hmm. and i was photographing them and i realized that something was pecking at my boots <laughs> <laughs> and i turned around and here's this king penguin with this long they have, they have a really long kind of pointed beak and it was poking at my at my rubber boots <laughs> that i was wearing and then it walked up and I, you know i turned around I'm watching it and it grabbed my pants and jerked at my pants <laughs> what are you my jacket and the next thing i know it's standing right beside my head looking down at me i'm looking up at it and it's you know they're about two and a half two and a half to three feet tall so they're a good sized bird yeah and it's looking down its beak at me and for just this briefest of moments i thought oh my lord what if it pecks at my face or something like yeah that? but it didn't um instead what it did this was the moment what it did is it threw its head back started pumping its chest and it started calling mm. they have this really hoarse because they sound like a kazoo okay and i'm not going to try to imitate it it's just hoarse and throaty and uh it's just unforgiving it's a beautiful it's a really lovely call and the thing is i knew it was saying something to me and i knew what it was saying this was what was so cool about this moment i knew what it was saying wow um you know back up just a little bit king penguins nest on these beaches they don't form they don't actually form nests and there are reasons for that but what they do is they incubate the egg inside a flap and skin with feathers over it so they don't form nests so when the chicks hatch and the parents are off fishing for it the chicks can wander all over these enormous colonies okay 150,000 pairs of penguins it's a huge cacophony of sound i bet yeah and smell by the way <laughs> yeah. and um so you, the logical question is with the parents off fishing when they come back all these chicks look quite alike how do they find their chick right well the answer to that is the same way that adults after they've been at sea for a long time will come back and find their mate again they do that because each penguin of these 250,000 pairs and all the chicks has its own particular sound in its call to us hmm. they sound indistinguishable virtually but they can recognize 
each individual penguin. That's another way of saying that each penguin has its identity inscribed in that call. Sort of like a fingerprint. Yeah, sort of or, like a fingerprint. I guess a voice sort print. Of like a signature. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like what they're saying when they call like that is, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. That makes and sense. what's implied in that is, who are you? Right. Um, and this is quite literal. This is not a metaphor. This is quite literal. This is what they're doing. And so this penguin is saying to me, here I am. This is who I am. And implicit in that is now answer me. Who are you? Right. Well, that, that really made me that that was profoundly moving in a couple of regards. One, that there was this moment of kind of dialogue, really. Yeah. With penguin. And the other, the more important feature of this is how do I answer that penguin? Who am I with yeah. regard to that penguin? And so this whole kind of idea that there is something deeper in penguins than we have really taken account of, that we can have some kind of communication with them. And most importantly, that maybe in some sense we're accountable to them for who we are and what we, in fact, have been doing to penguins in the planet for the last few centuries. Well. Mm -hmm. That really was what that kicked this whole idea of a quest into a whole nother gear. And the book itself is my attempt at answering that question to the penguin. This is who I am. Yeah, uh, it's beautiful. So that, that kind of brings me into my next question. Um, in the book, you quoted Richard Shirley, who is a marine ecologist and conservation biologist from the University of Exeter. And uh, he's quoted as saying, uh, of the 18 species alive today of penguin 11 are undergoing population declines and tens are considered to be facing a high risk of extinction in the wild so what are some of the things that have threatened penguin species around the world yeah and, and i would amend that number at this point um, iucn now has officially listed the international union for the conservation of nature now has 10 species of penguins as listed as in imminent danger of extinction and four species as near threatened, which is to say on the path toward endangerment. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, more than half, well, more than half of the species of all species of penguins in the world are in serious jeopardy, uh, which ought to be sobering to people. Yeah. Um, and the reason, uh, I, there are sort of two kinds of reasons. One, I call the kind of old school ecological environmental problems that look almost quaint and I'm almost nostalgic for them again now at this point. I wish we had these kind of problems. You know, things like egg collecting, guano collecting. Um, many penguins actually live near kind of big shipping lanes, uh, African mm. penguins, pe Magellanic penguins, Humboldt penguins. And so the discharge of toxic and polluted waters from the ships into has really been hard on these penguins and oil spills go into that category really hard on them. But the biggest sort of problem in this kind is fishing, conflict with fisheries. Okay. Um, and but the cool thing is that ecologists, biologists, activists have been working with governments and made headway in kind of setting aside waters, 
that can be protected for penguins. That's true with Dee Borsma working on Magellanic penguins off Patagonia, Richard Shirley and his crew protecting waters in South Africa for penguins. So that's really, you know, there are positive stories that are possible. And that's what I mean when I say I'm nostalgic for these kind of old fashioned environmental mm. problems. Right. Um, but the, now there's this whole new set of problems that are totally associated with global climate change. And the heating of the oceans, Dee Borsma calls penguins marine sentinels. Yes, they yeah. Tell us, they tell us about the health of the oceans and the health of the planet. And, you know, the, the oceans are heating. And that's having, that's just really hard on penguins, really hard on penguins. Um, for example, with the African penguin, there's this current of cold water. The Southern Ocean circles Antarctica. It's cold water. And there are some currents. There's the Bengala current that comes up into the Southern Atlantic and touches the Southern tip of Africa if, with cold water. And that is what enables penguins to survive in you know, that more northerly climate. I see. Um, well, with climate change and heating oceans, the Bengala current has been shifting, and it's now at some 200 miles to the south and east of where it used to be, taking with them the epicenter of the fish that penguins need. Mm. So when we were working with the colony of penguins on Robben Island, we were regularly encountering undernourished chicks and malnourished adults that we had to do triage for and then send to a rehabilitation center for seabirds. Well, this is just, you know, what's hard about this is it's, you know, it's the global warming problem. It's invisible. People don't take it seriously. And right. it, everything is on this global scale. It's not localized where you can really get your, you know, individual hands around it. Right. Um, so, you know, that's having effect. The, the heating of the oceans is now melting the ice pack in Antarctica at a much faster rate than it thought than they thought before. And that's just devastating for emperor penguins who nest on these. They don't nest, but they breed on these ice packs and these big land, sheets of ice that extend out from the continent. So, um, so their, yeah. their food sources are, are harder to get to and, and their, uh, nesting areas are disappearing. Right. And for emperor penguin, uh, since pe people love emperor penguins, it's worth just kind of underscoring. They, they live on krill more than anything else. Okay. There are these little teeny crustaceans that occur in the billions, uh, in the Southern ocean, Antarctic waters. But krill are now being harvested at a faster and faster rate. Um, some cultures and countries are looking to krill as a source of human protein, though that's not primarily what it is yet. Now mm -hmm. the harvest is primarily actually pet foods and uh, dietary supplements for omega-3 oh, okay. fatty acids. But there's real work on kind of figuring out ways that this can be a human food. and. They're now they're vacuuming krill out of the ocean. They're, they just big these huge suction tubes to just suck it right up. And wow. this is, you know, the, so the warming ocean breaks the ice up, so it's harder for emperor penguins to breed. And then we come along and take their food source away from them, and it's a double whammy. 
Right. And it's worth adding, by the way, that there's a particular stage in the krill's development when it needs the ice, the larval stage. It goes up and, you know, hangs out underneath the ice, right at, right on the edge of the ice underwater. And, you know, if the ice is gone, then that wrecks the food source as well and interrupts the natural cycle and its development and, of course, then its abundance. Wow. So I guess the question I want to ask is what role do penguins play in the ecosystem? You know, if we were to lose these uh, species of penguins, what does that mean ultimately? And, you know, what, what would we be missing from the ecosystem if we lost penguins? Well, you know, that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure. I, uh, I think, um, I'm, I'm trying to think about this in terms of, in two different ways in, in natural history. I'm not sure that there would be, uh, I don't think it's that we would sense that there is some disruption in the ecosystem because of the loss of penguins. I think it's a little bit more the other way around, that the disruption in the ecosystem is what's causing the loss of penguins. So seeing the loss of penguins is what's telling us, it is teaching us that we're doing something really bad to the rest of the environment, the rest of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way I think we need to read it. Yeah. Um, but uh, moving to a different kind of register on this question, what does it mean if we're losing penguins? Well, it means something like this. I think over time, part of what I loved about penguins and spent a lot of time photographing was how intimate and uh, kind of affectionate they are with each other. They, when they court, for example, they pose. The penguins will, the male and the female will kind of isolate themselves together, and a penguin will, can be either one, male or female, will strike a pose. Usually it involves like lifting the beak up and maybe putting the wings out a little bit and then just holding this pose. And the other penguin will, imitate that pose will strike the similar pose and they will just stand there Mm. holding that pose one to the other they become mirror images of each other Mm. there's a great biologist named franz de wall who worked a lot with bonobos and uh, in primate politics and he's written a book called uh, the age of empathy and his argument is that when we see that a number of species do this kind of mirroring in their courtships and that that mirroring is the biological origins of empathy. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So penguins, I think part of the reason we love penguins is because they are curious and because they have this kind of irresistible charm about them, this kind of emotional depth to them that we see. Yeah. And they are living lessons in a deepening love for the planet and creatures in all their beauty and all their vulnerability. And that's what we're learning to, that's what we will lose. That's what we will miss is this kind of lesson in loving the planet, which I think is what we need more of at this point, not less of. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I imagine when uh, you were heading off onto these excursions to study the different penguin species that you had to do a fair bit of research on each of the species. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what sort of information you researched in order order to be able to get the images you wanted 
while still being respectful of the animals and of the environment. Right. Um, well, yeah, I found myself doing quite a lot of reading. Um, and I enjoyed that. It's one of the things I actually really love about this kind of research, this this kind of travel and this kind of thing that I do, write, read and write about animals and nature. Mm -hmm. um, so, in all uh, frankness, a lot of the fundamental research was into the distribution of penguins. Um, because in order to see all, well, it, let me let me give two examples: the distribution of penguins and the taxonomy of penguins. Uh, that turned out to be a bigger part of this project than I expected. Huh. Um, if you want to see every species of penguin in the world, you have to then have some idea of what a species is. Right. Um, for example. Uh, when we decided on Robben Island that we were going to try to see every species of penguin in the world, that meant that we were going to try to see all 17 species of penguins in the world. <laughs> By the time we were two or three years into this commitment, there were now 18 species. Oh, man. And it wasn't because a new species evolved in three years. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not what happened. In fact, you know, the definition of species in, is changing. And um, rockhopper penguins have been considered a single species. And they have a major population center in the Falkland Islands. Those are now called southern rockhoppers. And there was a group of penguins in the Tristan de Cunha Islands to the north of them that biologists became convinced were a separate species. Oh. And that became, they split them, and they're, they're now considered two separate species. I Northern, see. Northern rockhoppers and southern rockhoppers. So we had to figure out a way to get to Tristan de Cunha Island, and that is a very difficult thing. So I found we did a lot of research then on what a species is and then also the distribution of them. And the kind of interesting thing about so many of these species of penguins is that they are some several of them are found only in one very particular set of little islands in the Southern Ocean or the South Atlantic and South Pacific. In, in other words, Northern rockhoppers, for example, are found only, well, 95% of them are found in the Tristan de Cunha Islands. Well, these islands are halfway between um, Cape Town and Rio de Janeiro. And they have no commercial tr ship traffic to them. They have no airport. So you have to figure out how you're going to how you're going to get there. Right. The erect crested penguin is found only on the Bounty Islands and the Antipodes Islands, 500 miles off the coast of the, of the southern island in New Zealand. How do you get there? Right. It's <laughs> uh, the only place to find them. And these are these are not. I, islands may be a little misleading. These are like little rocks in the middle of an, a stormy ocean. Wow. Snares penguins are found only on the Snares Islands, south of New Zealand. Royal penguins are found only in Macquarie Island, which is halfway between Tasmania and Antarctica. Um, so this is pretty common. So between this kind of distribution of penguins, we had, uh, I had you really have to kind of get boned up on which penguins are where and what that means. Right. And then also do a lot of research in how you're going to get to some of these places. 
But that turned out to be a lot of the fun. And um, we did a lot of traveling. We've been to some of the most, re- well, consider- we've been to the, the islands that are considered the most remote islands in the world. Wow. And it leads to this other question. Are there going to be more species that will be split in the future? Right. And the answer to that is probably yes. Hmm. But, um, you know, I think people have this notion that a species is a species, that it is, in fact, a thing. Uh, but that's it's much more complicated than that. A species is kind of a human concept. And its relationship to the actual world we live in is 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 uh, is complicated. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be that people considered a species to be defined by uh, if the if the two animals can breed together, then it's its own species. Right. But that is becoming problematic, and DNA is now kind of dominating the discussion about what a species is or an isn't. But there are these whole transitional forms of creatures. At what point do they become their own species? Right. Yeah, where's um, the cutoff? <laughs> Galapagos, Humboldt, Magellanic penguins, and African penguins are all Sphiniscus penguins. And there's some debate about whether just really how fully speciated they are. Hmm. Yeah. Because Humboldt and Galapagos penguins will interbreed. Interesting. Yeah. So that was, you know, it was, there was a lot of really kind of fun stuff to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any unexpected observations that you made while in the field about penguins, you know, Um, behaviorally or or otherwise? Yeah. Well, I will, there, there were a lot. I mean, I was kind of surprised by them all the time. I was surprised by how friendly they were. I never expected that, Mm -hmm. how friendly so many of them were, how curious they were. I mean, most biologists writing about penguins consider them kind of robotic uh, creatures of instinct and uh, cause and effect. And, and but they they really they their their inquisitiveness and their curiosity was just an, an ongoing source of delight and surprise. And I will say one of the biggest surprises for me was with the emperor penguin and the chicks. I had really been looking forward to seeing a colony of emperor penguins. It was really high on the list of things that I wanted out of this whole thing. And I wanted to see the chicks. I knew they'd be cute, but (laughs) there was just nothing that could prepare anyone for how absolutely adorable those chicks are. In person, they are just so completely winning that (laughs) they're they're just, you're just hopeless. In front of them, I think they're the cutest animal babies in the world. Yeah, they really do. Uh, and then that this is the surprise. Why are they so cute? Right. What, what in the world is the advantage to them of being that adorable? In Their the, parents won't won't abandon them. Maybe that's it. They're so cute. The parents won't. And the parents need to be so beautiful that the chicks will hang out. I don't know. Yeah. I I I can't quite understand what the what the actual advantage of being that adorable really could be but at any rate they're so cute and i could just we got to spend three days 12 hours a day on the ice with the colony of penguin emperor penguin and it was like no other wildlife experience i've ever had in my life wow that's amazing i would go back in a heartbeat i really loved them so that you had described a a river crossing that Uh you did in new zealand with your wife susan 
and you both went down and it sounds like it was absolutely terrifying. Um, and you ended up fairly hurt from it as well. So I was wondering if you could share that story with the listeners and also if you ever thought that the project wasn't worth the dangers that you were exposing yourself to. <laughs> well, let me ask answer that second question first. The <clears throat> travel in the Southern Ocean is often exhilarating. It's always an adventure. Yeah. Occasionally scary and it's sometimes downright dangerous. And I will say there it's it's not it's not luxury travel either it's not like getting on a cruise ship and going up the coast to to alaska yeah. you know it's kind of you're well taken care of but it's not luxury accommodations particularly but in all the discomforts and all the kind of harrowing experiences we might have had and all the storms we traveled through in boats I don't know. There, there was never an occasion in which I thought it wasn't worth it. The penguins re recompensed every hardship. I have to mm. say they were just, they were wonderful. Yeah. Always. Um, but, uh, New Zealand. Yeah. We, this was probably the closest we came to kind of a near death experience. This was, I suppose actually qualifies as a near death experience. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's one species of penguin that nests in the rainforest in, in New Zealand. They are penguins of the rain, not snow and ice, but penguins of the rain. They really mm -hmm. are. They're, the Maori name for them was Tawaki, which is named after the god of lightning, thunder, and rainstorms. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, they live in a, they breed in a temperate rainforest. So we were photographing them in the middle of several days of heavy rain. Um, on in this rainforest on the south coast of the South Island of New Zealand. And we'd had a window and we were able to get to this beach and see the birds. But the rain was for the rest of the day was so heavy that this river we had had to cross through to get to the beach we needed to be on began swelling the the lake that was feeding it overflowed and the river went from just a few inches deep to three or four feet deep wow That's... and it was coming out of the forest and cutting across the beach and it was it, it was um really fast the currents were really fast violent even and um and scary uh, the guide had left us on the beach while he went off to, to do some other things and he came back to help us jerry and we didn't even it was raining so hard we didn't even hear him when he came up wow um and he said this is going to be a problem he actually we tried to climb we had come down on a path he said and he'd followed that path and when he had to cross the river a couple times himself coming down he'd almost been knocked over and he was a strong guy and he'd been doing this for 30 years wow so he said, well, we'll just see if we can climb out of here up this hill through the forest. Uh, and we tried that, but it was way too muddy and we couldn't get good footing. And he said, no, we've got to go across the river. There's no other way out. We have got to cross through this river. Well, we walked over to the river, looked down at it, and it, it really was scary. Um, and he, so he gave us instructions. He said, you know, we'll lock elbows, mm -hmm. we'll form a human chain. And he was up on one up in the front and I was down. It was him, Susan and me. Yeah. Uh, and he said, we'll step in 
it's going to be uneven on the on the bottom. There'll be sand and rocks and boulders, and you've just got to keep your feet shuffling along the bottom. Don't lift them up. And he said, and especially the thing you don't want to do is fall down because the currents are really strong, and if you get swept out into the sea, there's no telling what will happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget him saying, next stop, Tasmania. Right. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Susan actually is one of the things I admire about her is when she doesn't complain when thing you know it's like there was none of it. What the hell have you gotten us into this time? Right. <laughs> uh, she's good about just doing what's got to be done. Um, we stepped in. And by the way, I've got about thirty-five or forty pounds of camera gear on my back. Oh my word! And. Um, and we have about 30 feet to go to get across this river. Well, it was up to our thighs when we stepped in, shuffled into the middle. It was over my hip by the time we were in the middle. Wow. And my, it, the current really was strong. And at one, it began just shoving my feet out from under me. And I remember screaming at Jerry, I'm losing my balance. And I remember him saying, get on your feet. Don't lose your balance. Get on your feet. Which is like really good advice, except totally worthless right <laughs> I mean, that's what i'm like trying to do to fall down right. it's like when people are you know pitchers are like trying to throw strikes and they're missing they can't hit the strike zone and you say what you got to do is throw strikes and you go well, yeah thanks that's really really helpful anyway he's telling me to get on my feet and not to fall down and it was like pointless and uh, i i went down i just went completely under um and I don't actually remember anything of the underwater moment. I don't even know how long we were underneath. I pulled Susan down with me. Um, I think the, the camera gear and myself combined, we were just too heavy. Yeah. I must have banged along the rocks on the bottom. Um, and the next thing I knew is that I came up to the surface and Susan was screaming at me. Let go of me. <laughs> Let go. And I'm like, no, no, you'll get swept into the Tasman Sea. I'll never see you again. <laughs> oh, my God. She had gone under. We were both under. We were all tangled up um, and completely disoriented. Uh, yeah. But it turns out we were actually, we the current had shoved us onto a sandbank that jutted out into this river a little bit on the other side. And so we were kind of like on, a, on our hands and knees trying to figure out where we were. Jerry had actually managed to get out onto the sand dune. And so he pulled each one of us up individually. Wow. Um, and, you know, this was like really, uh, we were soaked and shaken and yeah, really, really relieved to be out of there because it felt like we had dodged a real bullet. We, this could have been really, really bad. Right. Um, but the, I found in these kind of moments that there's a lot of adrenaline that happens, too. And that adrenaline is strangely exhilarating. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking that penguins are one of the most miserable ways you can find sometimes to have some of the best experiences of your <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> so Man, you just decided to keep going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, we climbed out of there. Uh, we had we had to cross the river a couple more times. It was actually really deep, but not as the currents weren't as strong up higher and they weren't as wide. So, in fact, at one point, it, the water was up to our chest. Oh wow! Um, but 
but we were already wet, so it didn't really matter. But yeah. When I got back to the room. I actually had this enormous bruise on my the back of my left leg. Went from my knee up my thigh, across my butt cheek, and and um, into my lower back. Wow. Black and purple and ugly. Um, Must have hit well, a rock or something. You think? Pardon me. Yeah, I think yeah. it was because I I banged my way. It was from banging along the rocks on the bottom of that river. Yeah. But we decided to see a doctor, and she, when she saw that bruise, she just gasped. She said, "What in the world happened to you?" And I said, "I blame the damn penguins. Right. The penguins entered <laughs> my bum." <laughs> <laughs> but it was sort of the mark of the penguin, really, and it was a sign of, of my kind of increasing identification with penguins. It was just this deepening kind of commitment to them. Yeah. Well, man, absolute dedication for sure. Yeah. So, so that bring that story kind of brings us to a couple of just general technical questions that I had for you, and and maybe some gear questions too. So. What kind of a camera backpack were you using to be able to keep your gear protected in in a river plunge like that? Yeah. And any of the other severe climates that you ended, you know you found yourself in? Well, I I was using Gura Gear camera pack, and my kit included. Uh, I was I regularly carried a six hundred millimeter lens. Mm-hmm. A um, and it was all Nikon gear. Mm-hmm. Although I've switched from Nikon a bit. Um, anyway, so a 600 millimeter and a 100 to 400 millimeter okay. and a 24 to 70. Those were the lenses I typically carried with me. Yeah. With a D5. Okay. And, um, and a D800. Yep. Uh, and um, that's a pretty heavy setup. Yeah. I shoot Nikon too, so I, I know how heavy that can get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I've actually switched to mirrorless almost entirely at this point, just to kind of reduce the size of the backpack and the kit. Yeah. And, and you know, technically speaking, you can do things with these new smaller, with these new, well, Sony, for example, the, these mirrorless cameras are astonishing at what they can, the way that basically their focusing ability is yeah. amazing to me. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm on a learning curve as I learn to focus a camera again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. I really love it. Yeah, that's great. So being that penguins are black and white, except for the one that you said that isn't, uh, is there anything that you had to take into consideration in your exposure settings so that you didn't overblow highlights or lose sh- shadow detail around their eyes, for instance, or or was it just nothing well, the different nice thing about black and white is they sort of uh, balance each other it's like a zebra you know um, that you can pretty much shoot in the middle but yeah. i would i would um i would do a little aperture compensation exposure compensation for some of that the, the harder thing was when you're shooting them on a lot of snow and ice mm, uh, yeah that makes sense uh, because it's really easy to, to as you say it's really easy to blow things out but I found that, you know, about two thirds of a stop compensation was usually all I needed okay. to make sure that I had the nice bright white background without losing detail. Right. Yeah. And um, you you just talked about the different focal lengths uh, that you were using. And you also talked about how you would like crawl on your belly. Is that mm-hmm. mostly how you would approach a colony is, is the idea to get down low and kind of 
creep your way in there no. or would you have to wait for a while and observe them before they kind of became more accustomed to your presence? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. And what I found myself doing, well, there were t- a couple of different things that would happen. Um, some of these islands that the penguins are on, it's prohibited from going ashore. Oh, okay. Um, because they're totally set aside to protect them because a lot of them are not only have endemic species of penguins that can be found nowhere else and are very endangered, but they would have rare species of albatrosses, for example. Um, Tristan de Cunha Islands are the only places that you find the Tristan uh, Tristan albatross was a, a species related to the wandering albatross. It's the only place to find white-faced petrels. Huh. Um, so, so you can't go ashore, which means that we would be in zodiacs, and we would just cruise along the shoreline, and you'd be shooting from a zodiac, and that means that you're shooting without tripods. So that's a whole mm. other set of issues. Very um, fast shutter and speeds, often I imagine. In really bad weather conditions. The northern rockhopper, for example, um, we spent five weeks on a boat to have two hours with northern rockhopper penguins. Wow. And in fact, when we got to the island where we saw them, Goff Island, which is one of the one of the islands in the Tristan de Kuhn archipelago, the weather was deteriorating. Waves were hitting white caps size. A gale was kind of building and there was a real question whether we would even get off the ship. So we could see little white specks on the shoreline, but it wasn't we weren't even clear about whether we would be able to get in the Zodiac. Well, they finally said that conditions are marginal, but we're going to put Zodiacs down. How many want to go into the Zodiacs to see the penguins closer up? Well, of course, everybody did. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and this is another feature of like penguin life. So the way you get into Zodiacs is you walk down a gangplank that's down the side. You, well, there's a whole series of steps that go down the side of a ship. You know, and then you step on a platform and the Zodiac comes up and is positioned right next to the platform and you step off the platform onto the rubber um, wall of the zodiac and then into the zodiac in calm seas this is absolutely not a problem at all but in, <laughs> in seas like the ones we were in in, in at Gough island the swells had the zodiac rising three feet and sinking three feet in other words six feet oh my word rise and dip and you've got to time it really really well um anyway so gosh that was kind of that's always kind of exciting i've never seen anybody not make it yeah apparently that happens people you know slip off or mistime their step oh yeah for example if you try to step into that zodiac when it's going down instead of coming up you'll just drop and, and you may slip right off the the rubber wall. You may slip inside. And I've seen people just stumble right into do yeah. their belly flop into the center of the Zodiac. Gosh, that, that's not uncommon and be happy to be there. But at any rate, nobody had a problem with that. It's just sort of like getting on a bucking Bronco um, right. uh, with nothing but water and a big camera pack on your back. But um, I still I can't imagine I get terribly seasick. So just even uh, thinking about having this visual of what you're describing is yeah, this is not a this is not a challenge for people who get seasick, who are violently seasick. I yeah. just don't. I don't. I never have. I never do. I don't know why. I'm really lucky that way. Very but lucky. What it means is you're shooting often in low. But in that case, we were shooting in low light, heavy, almost slanted horizontal rain. And 
zodiac going up and down. So <laughs> you've got it's a real challenge to get a sharp shot in those circumstances. And people's cameras were breaking down because of the water. Sure. Um, so there, there are definitely those kinds of challenges that uh, are hard to imitate in a classroom environment. Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. But, it's, but I exciting. Mean, I mean, you know, yeah, it was another one of those cases where we were completely miserable and utterly happy it was just right. so, so wonderful um, uh, it sounds amazing it really does um well i would love for you to to share a quote from your book with the listeners uh towards the end of your journey um you know you mentioned in the book that you were diagnosed with parkinson's disease mm -hmm. and uh for many i think that would have dissuaded them from continuing their pursuits you still had more species to see after your diagnosis. Um, but it seemed like it fueled your passion even more. And so wondering if you could uh, read the last paragraph on page 165. I'd be, I'd be glad to. And thanks for asking. And can I just say a word before I read it? Um, sure. Yes, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's in um, 2014. Uh, this was about 10 years into this project, and I still had several species to go. Um, and the strange thing is that penguins were, I don't know how to describe this, a kind of inspiration um, in all that. I mean, it's really, I mean, everybody sooner or later will have a, a very sobering conversation with a doctor. Mm -hmm. Nobody escapes that in this world. But that doesn't mean that it isn't when it happens to you. It's, it's kind of shocking and you kind of have to come to terms with that shock. And yet I found penguins living in these utterly difficult circumstances that they live in, these often hot, very hostile environments uh, with all kinds of challenges to face and to overcome. They were an amazing kind of inspiration to me because they just seemed, even in, the sp in spite of all that, to have this amazing zest for life. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to be happy when everything is going your way. And the question is, what kind of attitude do you bring to things and your life when you face a challenge? And they were, for me, a model that, I don't know, sort of helped me come to terms with with this diagnosis of Parkinson's. And um, so the, the paragraph reads... Um, we had been, we just, yeah, this was about the Northern Rockhopper and uh, um, photographing them from the Zodiac and having seen number 18, which was just a really great deal for us. Yeah. And I, and I write, so we were soaking wet. Hypothermia was a real possibility. People, people's cameras were breaking down in the rain. This was a miserable experience and we were completely happy. And I might use the same language to apply to my Parkinson's, a miserable thing to be handled, handed. And yet, strangely and ironically, I've never been so happy in my life as I am now. What's most important to me has been made clear by the Parkinson's diagnosis. Concede nothing, love intensely, do your stretches and exercises, don't worry, and be grateful for all you've been given. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I feel like this is an outlook that, uh, you know, to have this outlook or to follow these, you know, quote unquote rules of life in a way um, would be so valuable for all of us if there was a way for us to embrace it. And so um, 
I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us today and also in your book. I think it's just a really uh, beautiful outlook. Thank you. Well, if I could make one maybe final comment, it's that, um, you know, one of the things I've spent a lot of time with animals in the field and you know, really an adult career studying animals. And one of the things that I've learned about them is not really biology. It's that animals it don't exist to be our teachers, of course. But the truth is animals have always been our teachers. Mm. They have always been teachers to people. And what animals have always been teachers of is emotional intelligence. And yeah. that's the real thing on the line for losing animals, for us, for the impact that it will have on humans. Wisdom from one entrance quite cut out. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't agree more with you. I, um, I love animals. I love connecting with them. There's something special about that bond, you know, looking into their eyes and feeling that connection. There's, there is something very special and um, that, that, you know, the bond that we have with other humans is, is also strong and just different. It's just something different about connecting with an animal in that way. And um, so I, I completely agree. So before we wrap things up totally, are you ready to do a little quick lightning round for fun? Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> so just the first thing that comes to mind. So if you could only photograph one species of penguins, uh, wh which one would it be? I want to go back to the emperors. Yeah. I want, I want to photograph the chicks some more. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Uh, it's too obvious. It's so obvious, I know, but I can't help it. Right. <laughs> you love what you love, right? Yeah. Uh, what is one piece of adventure gear that you can't live without that's not photography gear? Uh, one piece of adventure gear that I can't live without. Um, binoculars. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what is one message you hope your readers take to heart from your book? Um, yeah, well... I guess um, then the number one message really has to be that um, penguins are living lessons in loving the world more and more fully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why photography? Uh, um, because photography is just this vehicle that enables me to focus on what's happening in the world around me mm -hmm. and it gets me outside of myself and gets me connected to a world that has more beauty in it than we normally give it credit for. Mm, yeah. Oh, I love that. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Well, the truth of the matter is that in most regards, animal well, penguins, for example, this is really true. Animals have been guides for me. They have been, they, they, they've changed my life. And I would say that in many regards, they've saved me. And mm. I have nothing but, but uh, gratitude for them for that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, if, for instance, your, your diagnosis was going to happen anyway, you know, having had the 17 years or I guess at that point, 10 years of time with the penguins seems like it really sort of prepped you for that moment. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It did. Well, Charles, this has just been amazing and a lot of fun. It's been really great chatting with you about your your passion for the penguins and passion for 
animals and, and wildlife and the natural world. And I really appreciate you sharing your experiences with us and your stories. It's been really great. And if people wanted to find out more about your books or photography or any other projects you have going on, what's the best way for them to find you? Well, um, they can find me on my website, charlesbergman.com. It's got lots of photos of all kinds of creatures besides, as well as penguins and a whole barrage, a whole slew of information and kind of cool, cool things about penguins and other creatures uh, at the website. But I'm also on the Facebook, Charles Bergman, author, photographer. Okay. And on Instagram, Wild Crest, Wild Quests. Okay, great. And I will put all those links in the show notes that people can find them easily. Thank you. So, yeah. So, well, thank you again so much for for being here today. Well, can I thank you as well? And I appreciate that you've read the book. You really did homework and it it made the conversation really that much more enriching for me as well. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Charles Bergman. And again, you can find out more about his photography and books, including Every Penguin in the World, over on his website at charlesbergman.com. And all of the links and information we mentioned today are in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 17. Thanks again to Charles for coming on the show. And thank you listeners for sharing a part of your day with me. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. Just two quick reminders. First, the Natural Landscape Photography Awards is open for entries until September 1st, and they're offering you as a listener of the podcast 15% off your entry fee when you use the discount code OPS15 at checkout. So head on over to naturallandscapeawards.com to learn more about their submission requirements, including what post-processing methods are accepted, their incredible lineup of judges, the prizes, and other important information. And best of luck. And second, if you'd like to submit a question to be answered on our Tidbit Tuesday episodes, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you'll be able to record your short message. And I look forward to hearing from you. Coming up on the podcast, we'll have landscape photographer, writer, and educator Colleen Minnick, who shares her perspectives on visual perception, cultivating a creative mindset, and photography as a business. And shortly thereafter, we'll have Cody Schultz on the show to talk about the immersive process of large format black and white photography. So be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss out on these great episodes. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll give a little tip and answer your submitted questions. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.